Hello, everyone, and good morning. Uh, my name is Rich. For those of you who don't know me, I'm going to be leading us through uh, this next part of our meeting together. Um, and basically, at the moment, we're in a brand new series as a church, which Adrian kicked off for us last week, uh, entitled Jesus Changes Everything, Full Stop. Um, and as we're going to see, Jesus does change everything in all sorts of different ways, in all sorts of different areas in our lives. And as we're looking at this, we're doing it through the book of Colossians. Um, and so I want to get straight into that uh, this morning. Um, Colossians is a book written by the Apostle Paul um, to a small church, a new church um, in kind of modern day Turkey, encouraging them uh, to continue focusing on the essentials of the gospel, which is Jesus, uh, to not move on from him to anything else. And so Paul writes this uh, in Colossians 3. Um, this morning we'll be looking at Colossians 1. Verses 3 to 8. He writes this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And last week, Adrian kicked off the new series, um, verses just one and two, and he themed it on the Channel 4 program, Location, Location, Location. Uh, and so this week I thought, fun thing to do, I'll try and theme my talk on another Channel 4 program. And so some top tips if you're wanting to do that is not to browse Channel 4 late at night. Um, <laughs> looking for program ideas, you might come across something called Naked Attraction, which scars you for life. Um, <laughs> But I have, uh, I have managed to find one, uh, and so I've decided that this week's talk is a bit more like... Uh, <laughs> don't do it. Um, this week's talk is more like the crystal maze. And so in the crystal maze, you have all these kind of different areas and things you kind of race through from one to another. Uh, and it's kind of like that in this passage that we've been looking at. Paul has finished his opening greetings... And now he's rattling through all these kinds of different concepts, different topics, um, from one to another. And so in this passage, uh, he covers either directly or by association, uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit, faith, love, hope, eternity, truth, justification, sanctification, the gospel, and grace, out of which we could draw applications for prayer, thankfulness, community, church meetings, church planting, evangelism, discipleship, daily life, work life, preaching and teaching, oh, and the eventual destiny of the entire world, the cosmos, and all of creation. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, and uh, our time together this morning has started to count down already. Uh, there's another one for you, so I'm not going to be able to do all of those. And so the question for us this morning is less, what is Paul saying about all of these different things? And it's more, 
What is the framework he's giving us that enables us to work out how all of those different things fit into God's purposes in our lives? How do they fit into his grand designs, if you will? I'll stop. Okay, I've got more. I'll stop. Um, Yeah, if I can get a Google box in, I utterly will. And so I think what Paul is saying in terms of this framework that he's giving us to look at all those different areas, he's, he's teaching us how to be fruitful. And so essentially that's what we're going to look at this morning, how to be fruitful. You see, Paul's desire for the Colossian church is that they might grow to be even more fruitful in every area of their lives. And so he's been uh, encouraged so far by the reports and the stories that he's heard of all the good things that are happening at Colossae, that there's fruit growing, that good things are happening there. And he wants to ensure that they don't fall for this false teaching which has come in and encouraged them to move on from Jesus to other things. But rather, he wants them to see that the magnitude and the supremacy of Christ is such that we can never fully plumb the depths of who he is and how he changes everything. All the fruitfulness and growth we could ever hope for are bound up wholly and entirely in him. And fruitfulness is this sort of intangible quality uh, which our culture and every culture is looking for. And we might use different words for it, but it's at its heart, what culture says fruitfulness is, is that sense that our lives are displaying an evidence of purpose, of belonging, of growth, that we are going somewhere. We're moving forward in our lives. That's something we're all looking for, but which so easily gets twisted into all sorts of different pressures and expectations becomes, if we're not careful, a checklist for us to tick off if we want to be seen to be moving forward and making a difference in our lives. Are we moving up the ladder in our work, in our possessions, and our home? Are we building a family, a skill set, an experience? What Paul is talking about when he talks about fruitfulness is very different to that. He sees it not as a checklist to complete, but as the continuation of growth, uh, continuation and growth of, of something that should already be marking our lives if we've centered them on Jesus. And so right at the start, the God who creates everything speaks, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And he says it, first of all, to all of creation, to nature and plants and animals, And then he says it again to humanity. But the story is, the big story of the Bible is that it didn't take us very long to start doing the opposite, to start allowing ourselves and our communities to fall into decay and corruption instead, to wither and shrink at their core, even if on the outside they seem to be continuing an onward march of progress. And so when Paul talks about fruitfulness, he's talking about something which has its, its roots right throughout the big story of the Bible. A story of good fruit being produced here and there, but on the whole, more bad than good. And yet now, Paul says, God is doing something new. Now, the gospel is bearing this fruit 
It's growing throughout the whole world and it's bearing fruit in you. That's his word to the Colossians. It's his word to us today. Something has changed. Something is different. It's a new day and at last the people of God are becoming what he's always intended them to be. What he's always intended us to be. A fruitful people who bear good fruit revealed in hope, faith and love. And the pattern of those three, that famous uh, trio, is one that appears several times in the New Testament. You might recognise it from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage often read at weddings. Um, But at this time, in this context, Paul uh, is slightly unusual in what he says, in that he defines faith and love as those which spring from hope. In other words, they get their energy, they get their get up and go from hope. Hope is the primary thing. It's the key to unlocking the other two. And to help us understand what he means by this hope, there are two main aspects that he highlights, which help us understand why he's given it this slightly more prominent position in this instance. Firstly, he says, it's a hope stored up in heaven. And secondly, it's a hope whose substance is the true message of the gospel that the Colossians have heard and received. This is the something new that God is doing throughout the world. It's a gospel of hope. And that phrase, stored up in heaven, uh, is an interesting one. It's a theme that Paul returns to later on in chapter 3, when he encourages the Colossians to uh, set their minds on things above, not on earthly things. And different Christians throughout history uh, have in different ways fallen to one extreme or the other. They've either kind of tried to lock themselves away, cut off from the world, thinking only of heavenly things and hoping that that is enough. Or they've embraced earthly things too fully. They've allowed the culture around them to dictate and distort what they believe and how they live. And I think If we're being honest, the bigger danger for us in our context right now is probably not enough heavenly thinking rather than too much. The problems of the world, the challenges I know I have to overcome in my own life are generally not that I'm too focused on heaven, too focused on eternity, too focused on God's big plan for everything. It's that I'm focused too much on the world. It's been my struggle this week, even as I look at my to-do list, which seems far too long, and the time I have left to do it all in, which seems far too short. The problem in my life is not that I'm spending too much time praying. It's not that I'm spending too much time reading the Bible. It's not that I'm spending too much time worshipping. It's that I'm too earthly-minded, not that I'm too heavenly-minded. And Paul isn't saying... In this case, the first one is good. It's good to lock ourselves away and only do those things. What he's doing is he's giving us a framework that enables us to see that fruitfulness in hope doesn't come from escapism and it doesn't come from indulgence. But it's a hope that leads to faith and love. We're not to be those, as the old saying goes, who are so heavenly minded we're of no earthly use. But nor are we to become self-centered, seeking only our own pleasure 
with the acceptance of the world. Rather, a true understanding of the nature and location of our hope protects us from both. It shifts our perspective so that we see the things of the world through the lens of the hope that's stored up for us. And that's why it's important that this hope is stored up in heaven. It helps us to see that this hope is something which is external to ourselves. Hope is not fundamentally our experience of hope. It's not primarily our feeling of hopefulness, but it's the reality of the hope that is contained within the true message of the gospel that the Colossians have already heard, that we've already heard this morning through our worship. The word gospel literally means almost good news. At its heart is an announcement, a proclamation of a reality that was hidden from us at one point but now has been made known in Christ. It's that thing that Mike was talking about that God has done for us, not what we have done for God. It's not something that comes from us. It's something we come to as we hear it through the word, through worship, through communion and baptism, through prayers and encouragements from one another in all sorts of different ways. And that's actually a wonderfully liberating truth because it means that as difficult as it is sometimes to get our heads around this, our hope, Christian hope, is not primarily about how hopeful we're feeling on any given day. Some days I wake up, I don't feel very hopeful. Um, Partly that's because I'm not really a morning person, generally. But more than that, it's generally that I look at the world around, I see the things on the news. Um, It doesn't fill me with a lot of hope. That's why it's good news that the gospel is not about us. The gospel is not our response to the gospel. It's the objective reality to which we respond. Our hope is, in other words, stored up in heaven because it's bound up in Jesus and in him alone. The God who has made himself known to us by his Son, who reigns now at the Father's right hand, that's the hope that's stored up for us in heaven. The foundation of our hope is only and always the one who changes everything. And as Paul continues to unpack this over the next few verses, we're going to see in future weeks, he can't help but break out into a wonderful exclamation of the identity of Christ. We'll be looking at that together when we get to verses 15 to 20. And through it, Paul has come to see that Jesus is that hope that transforms our past, present, and future, who by his life, death, and resurrection brings us out of sin and death, and into freedom and new life, who gives us a new location to live from and is returning to renew and restore everything. The good news is not that one day God will declare enough and do away with everything, spiriting off a lucky few to a disembodied existence. No, the good news is he has a plan the transformation of the entire cosmos in order that everything might be reconciled to him. This is the son who has forever been enjoying the love of the father 
in the spirit and is now catching up everything in that love. Is birthing new life and new creation in the midst of the old, that resurrection life in us today. In order that light and peace and justice and righteousness might fill everything through him. That is the message that the Colossians heard 2,000 years ago. That's the gospel of hope that has come to us even now, 2,000 years later, centuries later, thousands of miles away on a distant island. That's the gospel of hope we're invited to receive afresh and live in the goodness of each and every day. It's a hope that we haven't even yet begun to see fully. That's, again, what being stored up in heaven means is that our present taste of reality, of knowing God, of enjoying him, that's a foretaste. It's an anticipation of the greater treasures that we will one day know. The new creation is not going to be some kind of finishing touch. It's not that we're going to do most of the work now, and then God will come and add a few little tweaks here and there. God is not a boss who wants to sweep in and take credit at the last minute for what we've been doing. What's to come is far better than we can wrap our heads around. It's far better than we can possibly imagine. Our eternal hope is wrapped up in Christ in heaven. And our expectation of the future, therefore, what some of us might define as hope, is not that things will get better and better and better. That's what the world thinks will happen. That's what the world means by hope. But our expectation is that things might very well get worse. But that in the midst of that, we get to be those who increasingly call forward that future hope, that objective external reality into the now. And we do it, Paul says, through our expressions of faith and love. We do that by being the light that shines all the more brightly because it's shining in darkness. That is the hope we are invited to live in. And it's also how we start to work it out in our own lives and as a community. See, Paul writes that out of this gospel of hope springs faith and love. Paul again here is playing on that kind of organic, natural imagery. But what has happened among the Colossians is the gospel of hope was planted like a seed and is now springing up amongst them in faith and love. Uh, my parents uh, have recently moved house. Um, they've managed to get rid of me to Birmingham uh, and my sister to marriage. Um, and so, having got rid of both of us, they have managed to follow their lifelong dream, uh, almost, of moving from where I grew up uh, in Hampshire uh, to the West Country. And so they've moved to Somerset, uh, to rolling fields, and flowing hills, and endless orchards, and all that kind of thing. And now their house actually backs onto one of those fields. And so this year, as they were kind of settling into their new home, they watched as the farmer came and he plowed the fields and he planted the seeds. And they watched as a crop grew and grew. And they did it all the while trying to guess what it was that was growing. Uh, my dad in particular uh, was hoping for something like sweet corn uh, or runner beans 
uh, or basically anything edible, uh, that when he fancied it for dinner, he could kind of just subtly reach over the fence and bring into their garden. And apparently that is the way it works in the country. You're allowed to do that, I hear. Um, that's what they told me anyway. Um, uh, it ended up in the end being broad beans, um, which were kind of all right, not that great. Um, a bit un, un cooperative of the farmer to not plant something they really, really liked. Um, but what we see in that, and what we see through every single expression of nature and growth of um, plants and fruits and vegetables, and what we see even in our own lives amongst um, children and kids as they grow, what we often forget, and yet all of nature is constantly trying to remind us, is that growth takes time growth takes time. And I know this is true in my own life. It doesn't just happen overnight. My dad wasn't there the day after the seeds had been planted uh, with a measuring tape to see how much they've been growing or a basket to start picking. It takes time for growth to happen. But our expectation should be that as we take hold of the hope of the gospel, as we hold fast to it, we should begin to see growth and fruit here in our lives in practical and visible ways. And here, that's described as faith and love. It's thought and deed, as we'll go on to see. And yet, Paul is also keen to remind us that this isn't our work. That we don't drum up faith and love by ourselves, by just believing harder. It's a work of God. And that's why in verse 3, uh, you'll see he doesn't thank the Colossians for their faith and love. He thanks God for giving the Colossians faith and love. He writes elsewhere in Ephesians 2, 8-9, we've been saved by grace through faith, but not from ourselves. It's a gift of God that none may boast. That is the faith that saves, that unites us to Christ. Uh, Tuesday marks uh, a momentous day, um, an important day, um, not Halloween, um, but rather the 500th anniversary um, of an event that happened in Germany uh, when a man named Martin Luther nailed 95 theological theses to the wall uh, and the door of his local church. Um, and in the process, started something called the Protestant Reformation, uh, without which there would be no Oasis Church. Um, or if there was, it would be an Oasis Church that looks very different. I'd be wearing a long gown, for instance, you're imagining it, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the main things that Martin Luther uh, and the other reformers do did and kind of rediscovered in that time was the freedom and joy in the knowledge that we're saved by being united to Christ through faith, not through our works. We don't earn our way to God by doing good. The, kind of that image of St. Peter at the pearly gates with a checklist, seeing how we've done, weighing up our good and bad, is not what it's about entirely. Actually, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is enough. It's enough. Nothing else is needed, only to receive that. That's the invitation we've had, even this morning, through worship. Just receive this Jesus again. And yet, at the same time, the reformers were equally clear that while we're not saved by our works, good works should follow faith as the fruit of a transformed life. 
the difference is, is subtle, but it's important. We're freed from having to try and justify ourselves before God and others. And we're freed to pursue growth in hope, faith, and love because we're those who know the joy of what it is to be united with Christ. And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't say that you're a follower of Jesus, that's what's on offer to you this morning, to receive Christ and in him know total assurance that his work is finished, that his work on the cross was enough. You don't need to do anything to add anything to it in order to know God's acceptance and his love and his grace, to be welcomed into his family, free from sin and guilt and shame. That's what's on offer this morning. And the way that that works out for us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, is it works out in the slow, gradual, plant-like growth and transformation of our whole selves, our mind, our soul, our body, our heart. As we learn what it is to be fruitful in our words and our thoughts and our deeds. And so firstly, Paul writes that we are to bear the fruit of faith that God has planted in us. Verse 4, faith in Christ Jesus. We looked last week at what it is to be in Christ, to live as those whose location is wholly rooted in who Jesus is and what he's done. And here we see that Jesus is both the object of our faith, he's the one in which we have faith in, all other faith is meaningless if it's not in Jesus. And he's also the location in which we exercise that faith, live in our new status as those who are in Christ. And yet, in order to grow in that, we don't just sit around waiting for God to give us some kind of an extra faith injection, uh, like a nervous skydiver, uh, trembling on the edge of the plane, hoping someone's going to give him a little nudge off the edge. Um, we don't do that, and we don't look as well for kind of other, more spiritual things to move on to. That's what the Colossians were in danger of doing. We do it by continuing to focus wholly and entirely on the one who is the object of our faith, Jesus. And that's what we've been doing as a church this year. Um, we're in a year where God has spoken to us. He told us it's going to be a year of adventure. Um, and in amongst all the other adventures that we've been having, um, some of them exciting, some of them painful, um, some of them uh, stretching for who we are, amongst all of those, been seeing again and again that the greatest adventure is the adventure of faith as we explore more and more what it is to enjoy and reveal Jesus. That's what we're doing through this series, learning together to understand what it is that Jesus changes everything. For us as individuals, for us as a community, a family, and ultimately for all of creation. And so to seek to know him more is to see him more. And that is what always produces faith. So we're to bear that fruit. And secondly, we're to bear the fruit of love. Paul here specifies this as uh, the love that you have for all of God's people. But that doesn't mean it's, it's an inward-looking, self-centered love, that we're supposed to be those who, 
as I was mentioning earlier, kind of cut ourselves off and huddle in away from the world. No, Jesus says uh, in John chapter 13, that people will know who his disciples are by the way they love one another. That the way our unity works out together is a powerful witness for the watching world. The more we grasp that, the, the love that God has for us, we're to reveal and share amongst one another. The more we do that, the more it can't help but overflow and flood out to those around us and stand in contrast to the ways of the world. Psalm 103 uh, says this, The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. That is our natural state. Here for a time and then gone. Destined to bloom brightly and then fade. The very next line, the psalmist writes, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. How can we be fruitful? How can we bear fruit that lasts? How can we get in on this everlasting love? I want to get in on that. I know I'm not everlasting. My natural condition is to be here for a time and then to fade away. God says, in him, we're invited into a love which goes from everlasting to everlasting. And we find this love only and always in Jesus. It's a love that brings everlasting life. That we take hold by faith of the promise of the gospel of hope. Of the love of the Father which has forever been poured out on the Son is now poured out on those of us who are in Christ. A love whose height and breadth and depth and length we can't even begin to fathom. And as we do that, we will increasingly bear the fruit of love in our own lives. And so what does that look like? Well, I have to paraphrase 1 Corinthians 13 that I mentioned earlier on. It means that we will be less short-tempered and rude and instead will be more patient and kind. We will be less jealous and arrogant, and instead will be more caring and humble. We won't seek to dishonor others for our own benefit, but instead will try to lift them up. We won't keep a record of wrongs, but will instead be quick to forgive. We won't delight in evil, but will rejoice in the truth will increasingly learn how to always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. That's not an easy thing. It will take time. We'll make many mistakes, but we won't do it alone. Verse 8, Paul writes that this love is in the Spirit. The whole passage makes no sense at all without God as the architect of love. Jesus as the perfect example of love and the Spirit as the presence who empowers this fruit of love to grow within us. And so as we fix our eyes more on Jesus, crucified and risen, we'll know more surely the love the Father has for us. And so we'll learn to live out that love in the Spirit, in 
each of the different unique circumstances and situations we find ourselves. And that's where I want to leave us this morning. How we work out what fruitfulness looks like in all of those different areas I rattled through right at the start. All those other things that Paul kind of touches on in this passage. How we work out what it is to be fruitful in all of those is we do it by asking how to grow in hope, faith, and love in those areas. And so, for example, how are we to be fruitful in our prayer lives? Well, we, we look to Jesus and we're stirred by hope, a hope of what he wants to do in the world, in and through us. And we pray by faith that he would cause us to be filled, filled with the love of the Spirit, that we might go out empowered to share that love with those around us. That's what we'll be delving into a little bit deeper tonight in our Knowing God discipleship course. For example, again, we might look at how we're to be fruitful as a church community, a church family. Adrian encouraged us last week. Well, we do it. We look to Jesus and together, in hope, embrace the adventure of faith that he's called us to, an adventure in loving God and loving people. How are we to be fruitful in our work lives? Well, we look to Jesus. We trust that the hope that we have, which is stored up in him, means that our efforts each and every day are not in vain. But rather will somehow, mysteriously, gloriously, find their place in his new creation. That every act of faith, every act of love, is an act revealing the goodness of that coming kingdom. That's the framework of fruitfulness that we're to live with and to pursue. God's plan for his people, what has always been his plan, that we would go forth and multiply the life that he has given us, is now on display. God is doing a new thing in the midst of the old. A new creation has been inaugurated. He's doing through the gospel what he always intended to do, what he's always called for his people to do, to enter into the fullness of the life that he's given us, that resurrection life in Christ, to be fruitful, to multiply faith, hope, and love in every situation and circumstance. That same gospel was bearing fruit amongst the people of first century in Colossae. That same gospel is even now sweeping the world, transforming lives uh, as people hear it for the first time in places like China, and Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. That same gospel is at work here in Birmingham. And is at work amongst you, bearing fruit and growing. Do you know that? same gospel, that gospel of hope that God has poured into our hearts is a work in you this morning. And so, I'm going to leave us with a couple of questions. First of all, do you know this gospel? If you don't, the invitation is here now, this morning, to receive Jesus for the first time. To come to him and say, Yes, I want to center my life on you. I want to know this truth 
and you've proclaimed. You proclaimed 2,000 years ago that you're proclaiming now in my heart. That's the invitation to receive Jesus for the first time. For others amongst us who might be thinking, I want to grow in this stuff. I want to grow in hope. I want to grow in love. I want to grow in faith. How am I going to do that? Well, we're going to ask what changes do you need to make to help you bear that fruit? And who do you need to help you do that? Remembering that it's a slow process, it's a growth progress. And yet, God, by his spirit, wants to come and empower you to bear those fruits wherever he is uniquely put you. Why don't we stand together? I'm going to pray, and if you feel like particularly any of those things uh, have kind of struck you, that you want to be someone who increasingly bears those fruits, that you want to give yourself and recommit yourself afresh to bearing the fruits of hope, faith, and love in your life, you might want to take this moment to just hold your hands out in front of you as a, a symbol, a posture of receiving from Jesus again stepping into the fullness of this resurrection life that he has given us. Or if you're someone who says, I don't know this life, but I want it. So Lord Jesus, we pray. Fill us with your love in the spirit. Fill us again with the hope of the truth of your gospel stored up in heaven and yet made known to us in our hearts. Fill us with the faith that unites us to Christ and which takes us from that point on the greatest adventure we could ever hope for. Pray, Lord, even now, you'd be revealing to us the things in our lives where you want to help us to bear more fruit, where you want to help us to grow, where you want to help us to learn what it is to live in the goodness of who you are and what you've done. And I pray, Lord, come by your spirit and transform us again as we go out from this place in your strength, in your name, for your glory.